We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished players, authors, content creators, and improvers about their lives, their careers, and about ways that you might be able to improve your own chess game. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. Of course, this is a monthly chess book review with a guest co-host, or in this case, co-host. So we had two chess junkies who I knew both loved the book we're going to discuss, so I couldn't pick just one co-host. And I love this book, too, by the way. What we'll be discussing is a modern, intermediate to advanced masterpiece. It is called Under the Surface by Grandmaster Jan Markos. <laughs> And joining me to discuss it will be Matt Fletcher, who is a chess Twitter mainstay, an actuary, a dad, a strong blitz player, 2000-ish fide. Um, and and uh, he's, I believe, the person who first turned me on to this book. He's been um, uh, stumping for it on Twitter for a long time. So I finally got around to reading it and then interviewed the author himself and another longtime fan of the book to the extent that you can be a longtime fan of a book that came out in 2018 is National Master Gopal Menon, who is a chess trainer, a chess bibliophile, an opening theoretician, a soon-to-be author, and one of the strongest NMs in the world uh, with a chess.com 
peak blitz rating over 2,900. So let's welcome them both to the show. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, hi. <laughs> and uh, welcome, Gopal. Excited to How's discuss this. Absolutely. So, so guys, we've got a lot to go over with this book. I mean, it's there's a lot we could go over at least, but first let's just hear what it is that you guys love about this book. So go Paul, why don't you go first? What what strikes you about this book? I know you've got an epic post on chess Reddit that people can find where you give your book recommendations. So you've read a lot of chess books. What struck yeah. you about this one? Well, I mean, uh as far as the structure, uh I thought it was really great. Uh the Basically, like what I enjoyed about it was the wide variety of topics and the fact that uh, it seeks to be different from a lot of chess books. Uh, I, I don't know about you guys and your guys' chess improvement journey, but like reading a lot of books, especially when I was young, I found a lot of uh, the books, like some classics even, rarely reflected the realities of a practical game. You know, and so this is information that you and the readers can apply in their games right as we read it. Um, as far as like specific chapters, uh, being a competitive pool player myself, the excerpt for the book when it was being teased was Anatoly Karpov's Billiard Balls, that chapter. So of course, I'm very attached to that. The opening section, the scheme, uh, I love that. And then the chapter 30, the interview with the correspondence player, the ma magician from Brno. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's not give away your favorites yet because we're going to be uh, drafting those in due time. <laughs> oh, but um, <laughs> but we'll definitely be expounding on right. oh, no worries. We'll definitely be expounding on those topics. Um, and Matt, what is it about this book that you find most appealing? Yeah, I think what I like about it most, I I think is it, it's not it's hard to classify as a book. I think it's it's got lots of interesting ideas. It's not it's not a book about openings endings or, or middle games particularly it's it's a book about ideas and a book about like um understanding how how to think about chess in a slightly different way um i i very much enjoyed um jonathan rousen's uh, books the um seven deadly chess sins and chess for zebras i would sort of compare it in some ways to that although um some of it it's 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 written in quite a different way but i think as a book about ideas i, I think it's it's a similar sort of thing um the i think the the examples are, are very well selected and i like the the fact that markus um he doesn't just include games where he's won he includes games or where he's played brilliantly he includes games where he's made a mess of things or you know um, some some games which are some quite uh, quite bad losses actually that that he uh, he came across. I think that's that's a very uh, a nice touch from him. Uh, and I also like that yeah you don't need you don't really need a board um, to play through. There's not sort of forests of variations. They're mostly kind of single variations or a couple of sub variations. And um, and you oh, the the other thing is that you know there's there's tons of chapters in the book. So there's 33 chapters in total. Um, and each of them are quite short, so you can literally just go in and and read a chapter or two like very quickly and pick up a little idea. Which I really enjoy going back over it again after not having picked it up properly for a couple of years. Yeah, I got it. I had read it in anticipation of my interview with Grandmaster Marcos in uh, 2021. 
Um, and I reread it, and I agree with you, Matt. It's eminently readable, and it's available on Forward Chess. You know, of course, I'm always lamenting whenever there's no digital version, but for this, with uh, the Forward Chess app, even to the extent that you do need to play through moves, um, you can just do it on the app if you have a, a tablet. It's published by Quality Chess, which, of course, means there's a free excerpt of the book for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, we should say this is not like a paid endorsement, but um, just a big fan of uh, of a lot of the books that Quality Chess uh, puts out, and this one in in particular. Uh, and we're not the only ones. It was the 2018 uh, Book of the Year. Um, just a few more details to share about the author. I definitely recommend listeners if you didn't catch my interview with uh, Grandmaster Marcos, you should check it out. His uh, his personality definitely comes across. He's uh, got a master's in philosophy, in, excuse me, in philosophy and Protestant theology, and he clearly comes across as sort of just a a deep thinking sort of guy. He works half as a chess trainer, half as sort of an academic. He said he le- he lectures companies and non government organizations about critical thinking. So just a, a student of decision-making um, generally. And and again, it, it, it really comes across in the book. And as Matt mentioned, uh, not a lot of full games. It's mostly excerpts. Now, I know that our Twitter friend, Neil Bruce, always is wishing for full games. Go, Paul. Does it, does it bother you when, when, authors only, um, when authors only have excerpts in a game, in a book? Excuse me. Um, I don't really think so. I, I think that it helps to keep the reader focused and show highlight some relevant parts. Uh, of course, it's nice to see like the finishing technique or, or anything like that, or how play might uh, uh, proceed from the diagram position after, let's say, a side has achieved a certain objective. Uh, but again, like what I was saying earlier with the realities of a practical game, like the subsequent play could be littered with mistakes and not even related to, you know, what we're talking about. And plus the other advantage with the format of just having the excerpts is you get more examples, like with the concerns of space. I think that's very important to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of stuff packed in here. I mean, it's actually, as as Matt alluded to, it reads fairly quickly um, because of the way it's structured. As he said, 33 chapters divided into seven sections. And the sections are uh, about the laws of the chessboard, about the inhabitants of the chessboard, about time in chess, about openings, about decision makers making, about computers, and about beauty in chess. And when I when I interviewed Jan, again, he... He sort of said that the overall theme was beauty in chess, and um, he, of co- course, has uh, subsequently written a book with his friend Grandmaster David Navarra that is more about what he called the practical side. But but in rereading this, I was um, I was struck that it's it's more practical than he lets on. Do you guys uh, do you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's steeped. You guys, I think the Rousen comparison by Matt is apt. I mean, it's um. I think it it might be slightly more tournament player oriented, and um, and again, fair reasonably more advanced players. Um, uh, Matt, do you have a sense of like what rating would you say could benefit best from from under the surface? Yeah, I, I was talking talking about it uh, earlier. I mean, I agree that sort of if you're wanting to get um. So wanting to improve off the back of studying this book, I would I would always recommend it to someone that's rated probably 
sort of 1800 plus that's kind of stuck and not sure what to do next it gives a kind of different perspective on how to think about chess i think um but i mean equally i don't want to be seen as as gatekeeping it for for stronger players i do think that it's 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 well written enough that that any player sort of who's interested in the game can can happily read through it and and get something of use and get some interest out of it but i think probably if you're if you're much weaker than sort of 17 1800 probably there's other places you want to look first if you're looking to improve yeah and hopefully we can distill some lessons so even if you are lower rated like you can gain from this podcast and then decide from there whether you want to read the book soon or save <laughs> it for when when you're a bit stronger. Um, and Gopal, as a chess trainer, I'm imagining some of your students I know are pretty strong, but some probably are below 1800. Do you Have you used this material at all? Oh, absolutely. I find myself um, lo- looking for fresh examples or inspiration from this book all the time. Uh, it just, it keeps on giving. And like with regards to the, the rating level too, that people can use it, um, I definitely think that like players 1800 and above like or around that range could benefit from it. But the thing is like, I've talked about this with uh, chess books before, you know, if you're punching a bit above your pay grade, like with uh, reading certain books, you know, you can always come back to it and get something from it, even when you're much stronger or above, like, let's say the, you know, recommended rating range. And I think that's truly a sign of a great book. And that's why I keep coming back to it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, again, read it twice within the span of a year now and picked up new things uh, for sure um, in in this second reading. So what we're going to do for the rest of the podcast is, again, there's so much material and he's got so many little original terms and stuff that really, I think all three of us could discuss this book for hours. (laughs) So in order to uh, be respectful of everyone's time, what we'll do is we're each going to pick sort of our three favorite things from the book. Uh, It could be a chapter, a concept, or a quote. And we're going to take turns and just talk about why, why we like, why we like these things and bounce ideas off of each other. And then at the end of the book, he gives, um, actual distilled improvement advice. So at the end of the podcast, we will, uh, we will share that for those of you who, who are able to stay tuned. But so we're going to get into picking our favorite things, but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Our friends at Chessable keep dropping new courses. Some of their latest include Play the Open Sicilian One by Grandmaster Miguel Santos. That's got 15 trainable lines that you can use to play against the Open Sicilian, kind of one-stop shopping for an opening that can be overwhelming to learn. And friend of the pod, Simon Williams, is out with The Harry Attack, fighting kingside Fianchettos after 1d4, along with I am Richard Palliser. And they've got tons of new stuff coming from Grandmaster Hans Neiman, Linear Dominguez, and the list goes on. And all of their courses, of course, utilize space repetition to help you remember the opening or tactical sequence or end game that you learn. So be sure to go to chessable.com and take a look at what is new. 
Perpetual Chest is brought to you in part by BetterHelp.com. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, or another mental health issue, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's professional therapy done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You can send a message to your therapist anytime. Uh, it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. You can go to their website to see lots of testimonials. Uh, if you do, please visit betterhelp.com slash chess. And if you do use that URL, you would save 10% off of your first month if you choose to sign up. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash chess. And of course, the links are in the show description as well. And we are back and we're ready to hop into the, the draft. And since Gopal already teased a few of his picks, we decided that he should be the one to pick first. So, go, and what I'd like to do, guys, is pick from our, our most favorite to our third favorite rather than sort of like a countdown format, um, just because uh, that way there's there's less chance of overlap. So, so, so Gopal, what is your favorite concept, quote, or idea from Under the Surface? I really liked, I would have to say, I mean, for, for my three picks, it's really hard. I, I well, love just them do all one so for much. now. No, no more okay, jumping the sure. gun. <laughs> I, got, I told you I got to get it in. Uh, so <laughs> definitely the interview with the uh, correspondence player, the magician from uh, Brno. Uh, I like that because it's very rare to see such an interview in, uh, in books of this kind, like chess improvement books, general improvement books. So I really enjoyed that just because it offered a lot of unique perspective. Uh, I've worked with uh, uh, ICCF Grandmaster Tansel Turgut, uh, son, also a very strong player. But I know how correspondence chess is at like that level. So it's just nice to see that perspective brought to the wider audience. So what resonated with you from that? I mean, they talk a lot about sort of whether or not there's creativity in uh, in correspondence chess. What what struck you from that section, Gopal? Uh, I would say definitely the very specific example. Uh, he was playing a game against another correspondence grandmaster where I looked up the game. It was like over like 100 moves, 115 moves, something like that uh, out of a very innocuous line in the Moscow variation of the Sicilian, like bishop b5 check, bishop d7. And he went for this line that basically gave him nothing, and but a, just a very playable position with a stable character, so he could just milk it. And one thing that I really liked was he said it's so remarkable because they have reached this heavy piece endgame, and he said that even when it looks like nothing is happening, there's just something happening, even if it's invisible to the naked eye, which I thought was really uh, beautiful when I was reviewing that game. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, I would have never picked that, I guess, not being a correspondence guy, but, but there, there, there are some, some great insights and it's certainly, as you say, Gopal, it's, um, it's an aspect of chess that doesn't necessarily get as much coverage, but it, it itself is under the surface because like stuff like the world championship match, like, you know, so much of the opening preparation, you know, obviously there's the deep engine work, but a lot of the games that, that are being uh, followed come from correspondence chess because these guys have these high powered engines running, you know, 24 mm. hours a day to, to come up with uh, what they believe to be the, the best opening sequences. Absolutely. 
Um, so Matt, uh, we'll kick it over to you. I don't know if you want to hop into your next pick or if you have anything to add about the uh, interview with the uh, correspondence grandmaster. No, sure. I'm, I'm like you. I, I think I wouldn't have personally picked that chapter myself. I, I, I quite liked reading through the chapter and it is, is very different. It's quite a different, um, almost different style from the rest of the book, which is, is interesting. You know, it just sort of jumps into a, into an interview, but, um, yeah, that that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been one of my picks, but it is it is an interesting um, aspect that's not not normally covered. I guess my I'll, I'll leave my 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 first one. I think Gopal can can have, and we can talk about later because I think and I know that he's he's interested in doing the billiard balls, which I think was my uh, my favorite as well. But um, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, I'm not not a not a pool player, so uh, I I can leave that one to to Gopal. But um, so I guess my my. Uh, one of my others was uh, chapter twenty-one, which is the the freezer, um, and it's sort of more oh, a, yeah. a, a metaphor, really, about talking about storing ideas that you find, but which don't actually yet work on the board, and sort of defrost them for later, or change the situation to enable the combination to work at some point in future. Um, so I quite liked, I quite like that general idea that you you sort of don't just calculate something and and then just completely you know discard it because it doesn't quite work you actually keep it in mind and uh, either see if it works later or try and make it work and a couple of sort of quotes from that chapter that it's 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 nice that um he puts uh, some sort of key things in bold which i i quite like and sort of allows you to draws the eye and allows you to sort of pick key information out but um yeah, he says about uh, a chess player doesn't systematically search one line after another like a computer program. He gets to know the position, collects pieces of information about it and sorts them. Um, with every new piece of information, his overall understanding of the situation on the board changes. And when he has enough information, he finds solutions that would not have entered his mind at the beginning. Uh, and then there's a little bit about uh, about that. And then the, the next bit, I think, is my favorite saying. I've always thought that dreaming and impractical searching should be allowed while calculating because otherwise it's often not possible to achieve deep understanding. I think that's a nice little quote and uh, interesting insight into the way a very strong player thinks about chess. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that section as well. And hearing that, and again, we'll, we'll get more into the uh, billiard balls soon enough, but, but just generally he has a, a real knack for, for giving language to a concept that you might not necessarily have had a word for. Like, you know, there's, I think anyone can understand the idea of seeing a concept, but seeing that it doesn't quite work and then trying to make it work a little bit later. But this idea, like Matt said, of calling it a freezer and, uh, <laughs> and then just sort of like having a word for it can, can help it resonate. Um, and you be more aware of, uh, the possibility that maybe when you're playing, you try to try to store an idea for for later. Anything to add about that topic, Gopal? Before I make my first pick, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I wanted to say something like um, with regards to the the freezer, the calculation method, the selection of moves. Um, one of the best uh, sources I think in existing literature uh, right now have to be those mind maps from um, Imagination Chess by Pata Gaprindashvili, which I don't think is in print now, but you shouldn't have trouble finding copies. Uh, but he talks about that, like, move selection with these diagrams and how somebody should go about it. And, okay, it's very dry, it's a little technical, and it's to the point, but Marcos presents a similar concept in a way 
you're not going to forget it with the language and everything like that. It's uh, like the way I tell people as kind of like a reflection on the whole book, it's chess strategy and concepts that, you know, are covered or maybe not covered so well in existing literature, but it's reimagined in an unforgettable way. Well said. Yeah. And before anyone runs out and orders imagination in chess, we should mention very advanced book, I would say like yeah. master, master level or so, but I know there's a lot of, uh, like Eric Rosen's a big fan. Uh, he's mm-hmm. recommended it on the pod and I have to confess, I, I excitedly tracked one down as Gopal said, I think they might've reprinted it or something. So I finally got one at some point, but it's one of those books that's challenging enough where it's just gathering dust on my shelf for the most part. I got um, you. <laughs> um, so my first pick for a favorite thing, or at least I don't know if this is my absolute favorite, but I wanted to set the stage a little bit. So I picked an excerpt from his intro. And actually, when I interviewed Jan Markos, I asked him about a small part of this quote, but the the whole story, I think, really just sets the stage. So I'm going to read this story that uh, Jan Markos wrote in the intro. Um Uh, which is, he says, when I was 15 years old, I played for the first time at the Chess Olympiad representing Slovakia. It was held in Istanbul, and I can remember the bustle of the markets, the morning calls from minarets, and dishes full of dill. However, what struck me most in my mind were encounters with the best players in the world. When I had a day off or whenever I had finished my game, I spent long hours standing above chessboards over which were leaning Ivanchuk, Gelfand, Adams, Korchnoi, or Svidler. And I was happiest when I could see them analyzing. Around the table with the chessboard, there always gathered a crowd of people holding their breath while watching how the soul of the position was revealed under the hands of the super grandmasters. These players could see much deeper and more sharply than all of us. They could see a direction when we were lost. They could see a deep sea of colorful fish and coral where we saw only the glistening surface. It was then that I learned the significant difference between a club player and a professional is not that the grandmaster can see much further or that he calculates much more accurately or faster. This this might all be true, but the significant difference can be found elsewhere. Grandmasters can see deeper. And this book invites you to study the depth of chess and invites you beneath the surface. I would like to show you how a strong player perceives chess, what he focuses on, and how he thinks about a position. Understanding is pure happiness, and I would like to share this happiness with you. So I just found that so poetic. And, um, you know, I think we, uh, the three of us probably all played chess as teenagers. You can imagine sort of, uh, it's very evocative, the idea of being this sort of wide-eyed kid. I mean, I wasn't, you know, (laughs) on a track to be representing my country at a chess Olympics when I was 15. But nonetheless, if I had been, I would have also been staring in awe at the at these legends. So I just love that story. And it definitely, I think, sets the tone for the rest of the book. 100%. Yeah, definitely. It's very, very nicely written. Yeah. Um, okay. So pick number two for Gopal. Um, you might want to go with the billiard balls. I don't know, Gopal, but it's up to you, of course. Okay. I had some backups. But yeah, um, yeah definitely... Like I said, I knew this book was for me because the excerpt was Anatoly Karpov's Billiard Balls. Like I had just gotten into pool seriously uh, around that year or maybe the year before uh, this book came out. And yeah, I just, what I liked about it was, uh, you know, number one, it's not really covered super well or like spelled out for anybody in existing literature. Uh, For instance, like, could you sorry? Could you explain the idea before you you go on? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so basically, with the idea of 
and Karpov's billiard balls was he starts off with the story of Karpov giving a lecture and he made a remark about how bishops are like billiard balls, how they cannot rebound easily from one flank or another uh, if their presence is needed on the other flank. So uh, transit paths can either be very slow or just inaccessible due to like a lot of traffic in the way or protected squares. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to get that for those <laughs> no, who haven't for sure, for sure. Yeah, so, uh, yeah so Margaret gives the example, doesn't he, of like if you've got a if you've got a bishop on h4 and you want to get it to c3, you have to go you know h4 e1 c3 or h4 f6 c3, and neither of those are likely to be very easy to 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 get to because either your own pieces are in the way or your opponent's pieces are in the way. So your bishop ends up getting stuck on one side of the board or the other if if you're not careful and the kind of how that works in a position yeah absolutely and and beautiful beautiful examples he finds as well i mean it's one thing again to to give language to this idea that as gopal said had never been written anywhere but he also just finds great examples where a bishop is like totally off sides and unable to uh to to get to the other side of the board the, Um, the, the carson game he gives is is excellent I, mean, I don't know whether you, that's the way Carson thought about it, but it's you know, the, the way that it's described by Marcos, and it's it's very it's very clear that oh, you know, that's that's what's going to happen. The bishop's going to get stuck on the side, and that's what's going to win Carson the game. It's, and one thing I learned, like specifically with that example, like we see this theme come up a lot in the book, where uh, you could learn something from uh, to any given example, just depending on the lens uh, through which you examine it. And this is like very useful for teachers. And he, in fact, will come back to the same examples. I don't believe he comes back to that Carlson one, but you see uh, multiple times, like he'll have a callback to an example from a previous chapter, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it is a nice touch and does show how everything's uh, interconnected. Um, so Matt, you ready for your second pick? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I was going to go with the, uh, the, actually the chapter before the billiard balls chapter, which is without knights. So the chapter eight, um, is a chapter about knights and how, um, you know, how they play and whether they like closed positions or not and that kind of thing. But the without knights is a very, uh, audacious idea, really. It's a chapter about how knights move and how knights affect the position but it's in none of the positions that are analyzed are there any knights on the board at all and the idea is that you you understand the piece better when it's not there um so uh talking about how the knights are quite slow and other pieces are are much faster so without knights on the board it's the, the board can look like a firing range with bishops and rooks and queens firing at each other where the knights kind of tend to slow things down somewhat. I'm talking about how, yeah, play speeds up when the knights disappear off the board, that the importance of pawn breaks increases, the importance of weak squares declines because knights are the best at at occupying them. And I just think it's a really interesting idea to say, well, we understand better how these things work when they're actually not there at all because we can see what the difference is compared to if you did have them on the board. That's yeah, a fun chapter that one. Yeah, and he's he's good on on each of the pieces when he turns his attention to each of these pe- the pieces. But yeah, the knight the knights one, it's like I often 
I wouldn't give a conscious thought to like Knights not being on the board and how that might alter strategy if if he hadn't written about it. Um, so I I agree. It's a, it's a fun chapter, and the one on Queens is uh is fun as well. Um, yeah, I was gonna say the the, the ones that so. For for me, I don't know whether either of you are going to to choose them, but the ones that don't don't quite work as well for me. I very much like the um, the magnetic skin uh, yeah. one on pawns, but yeah. the the other two, the uh, inconspicuous mate about past pawns near the promotion square, and the one about uh, is called fractures, which is on double pawns. They're they're perfectly fine chapters, but they it feels like unlike some of the other chapters you've you've read that stuff somewhere else that they're they're kind of they have to be there because they're kind of part of the general structure of of the book and you need something on past pawns and you need something on on double pawns to make it a complete study of the of the uh, of the sort of the inhabitants you know, the idea. Of the yeah chessboard. but but yeah. Those, those two those two didn't quite didn't quite work as well for me as just just because the the rest of it is is so good i think they they're decent chapters but they're not didn't seem to teach me massively new stuff in the way that some of the others did yeah and actually in in rereading the book the analogies were they kind of like i started to gravitate more towards the general sort of practical advice as i'll, I'll share in my next quote the analogies didn't grab me as much i do like the billiards ball ones, just because it's billiard balls, as we discussed, just because it's so evocative. But some of the others, like the magnetic skin, um, as you mentioned, Matt, um, the crystals one I felt was better. Like this, this idea that a pawn supporting a bishop is like strong, like a crystal. Um, I felt like like it was better, but still somewhere in between. It's it's it wasn't the analogies as much as uh, some of the other stuff. They really resonated with me and. Uh, on that note, my my second pick is just generally his discussion of decision making in chess, um, because again he describes this as sort of more a philosophical take on his love for chess. But in in rereading this, it was sort of as since I've been competing like about once a month, I was thinking more th- from that lens, and I actually did find a lot of uh, of good advice. So I'm going to read two quotes: one one small one, and then one bigger one. So. The first one is in the ch- in a chapter titled about decision makings and the importance of chess culture. And he says, uh, if I were forced to visit managers, bankers, or stockbrokers and ask them for sponsorship money for chess, I would tell them, we do exactly what you do. Chess is neither about crazy geniuses nor about playing as as soldiers, not even about wooden pieces. Chess is basically a decision-making process. A good broker is a broker who makes good decisions. A good chess player is a chess player from a, who from a variety of options always chooses the right one. And we'll talk more about what resonated with me in possibly my third pick, but then just to go on to what he says a little bit later, he says, uh, chess players often subconsciously believe that the most important task in a game is to outplay the opponent, to gain an advantage. Therefore, they put tons of energy into balanced positions. If they succeed in gaining an advantage, they think the hardest part is over. However, that simply is not true. Why is that? I'll give an example. Imagine that you're about to travel by train, which leaves every hour from the station. When will you, when will you run? When will you run? Spending your energy to be on the platform as quickly as possible? Probably when your watch shows something like 1457, 859, or 1504 if the train is late. So a couple minutes before the train's coming. This is because you know that if you arrive a minute later, it may cost you an entire hour. 
If you have lots of time until the train leaves, you can mess around, buy a newspaper, use the toilet. It's not important whether you arrive at the platform 12 or 17 minutes before three o'clock. Either way, you take the train leaving at three. In chess, the quote, train doesn't leave in balanced positions. In balanced positions, you have to to do a lot of bad things to put yourself on the verge of losing. Your army can handle some inaccuracies. Maybe you'll be worse, but you'll still be safely in the drawing zone. In chess, the train leaves when the evaluation of a position is is between a win and a draw or between a draw and defeat. In such situations, every detail can be crucial to the final result. And it's so important to put most of your energy into these situations. If you arrive a minute later, the train of victory might be gone. Very often, the better a chess player stands, the worse is the quality of his moves. However, the opposite approach is the right one. Maximum effort should be put into positions with a considerable advantage or disadvantage. Um, So sorry for the long quote, but I found that I love the whole train analogy and the advice I find to be quite, uh, you know, as someone who constantly trying to manage my time better when I play, I found it to be quite, uh, quite resonant. Yeah, 100 percent. Yep. Cool, Paul. How are your time? Man- I mean, we know you're a blitz beast, but how are your time management skills when you play slow chess? You know, it's actually, I would say, not great. Not as good as you would think. Uh, if I'm in good form, it's better. Uh, generally, I try to remind myself, like, if I find myself thinking for too long, you know, is the game going to be decided here? Yes or no? And then move on. Uh, you know, something I think that's kind of in between the lines in Marcos's book. And then... Uh, I think I got this from Axel Smith's pump up your rating, like this kind of approach. And also some of the Rousen stuff, uh, like seven deadly chessons. But yeah, my time management, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, not that great. And so trying to squeeze water from a stone in a balanced position, you can very easily exert way too much energy trying to create something that's not there. So it's a nice thing to remember and come back to. Uh, not my time trouble failures, but... <laughs> Yeah, and and I did I did love the again the wording of the train station, the idea that this is just not a critical moment. Um, and and one thing I would say is for, you know, again, this is um, this book is more geared to stronger players because if you're if you're rated say again over eighteen hundred, as Matt said, you still blunder, but maybe not quite as often. So if you're if you're below that level, it you know you might say. Um, you might say every moment might be slightly more equal, um, but nonetheless, I think one could could apply the wisdom of like just making sure you don't blunder first and foremost. Like really, like take care of the downside first, and then from there look for the upside. And you still do have moments, whatever your rating, where you can work to consciously identify a, a, a tactical skirmish, like. Uh, um, Marcos uses, again, language that I hadn't seen before, where he talks about pieces being in contact. He talks about, like, you know, early in the game, the pieces are far apart from each other. So one sort of just uh, shortcut that a player could look for, no matter their level, is like when the pieces start to really get close to each other is a moment where you've hopefully saved your time for it so that you can uh, analyze it. And, of course, obviously, you can just know by how many forcing sequences there are and stuff like that as well. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we got one more pick each, guys. But first, we're going to take one more break. And then when we come back, we will have our final picks for our favorite things. And then we will uh, catch up, wrap up, and say our goodbyes. 
Listeners, I've got good news. I know you're looking for an update on my AIM Chess analytics, and I'm happy to report that I'm now only behind on the clock in Blitz Chess 69% of the time. Huge progress. So if I can keep up that 2% improvement in no time, I'll always be ahead on the clock, and I'll probably win more games because of it. And of course, with AIMChess.com, you can use their algorithm to dissect your own game, look at trends from openings, different phases of the game. Uh, And of course, they give you actionable puzzles based on whatever your strengths and weaknesses are. So go to aimchess.com and check it out. They automatically scrape your games from the major chess playing sites to give you the insights you need to work on your game. So if you go to aimchess.com and decide to subscribe, be sure to use the code PERPETUAL30. Links in the show notes. So let's get back to the show. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And Gopal, it is time for your final favorite thing. What else do you love about uh, Under the Surface? Yeah, so being uh, an openings guy, I really enjoyed his in- interpretation about the opening just because, like, uh, reading it, going through, just getting a taste of it before I got to that section, I was really anticipating what it would be like. And so I loved the scheme, uh, talking about, like, just this different way of thinking about preparing openings, Uh you know, several schemes are popular nowadays, like the dreaded London system, right? <laughs> you know, uh, which he does mention, but he profiles uh, Movsesian and the King's Indian attack as white. And then uh, Yevgeny Glizerov, a great exponent of the Stonewall Dutch. And what I thought was really unique was just not only hearing his opinions and showing some examples on these openings, but what made it very unique to me was his own experience with Glizerov. Like he had all this time to prepare. And I mean, Marcos, like apart from being very strong GM, he's also like a lifetime lifelong exponent of the closed opening as, as white. So he, I'm sure he had heard of the Stonewall Dutch before. And yet he said, you know, my computer couldn't crack it, this, that. And then I think in the game, like he, yeah, he didn't get anything in the game. So I thought that was really interesting to see his own personal experience tied in there like he did in a few other chapters. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because, Gopal, it's clear from reading when I always enjoy your posts when you post on Lee Chess um, and, you know, you're deep in the weeds on openings. You're like a hardcore theoretician. You love openings, as you mentioned. And Jan comes at it from the other angle. Like he mentions in the book somewhere he's not a big fan of openings. And when I interviewed him, he also talked about that. Like he's generally, and you can sort of get that vibe just from hearing him talk. And again, from uh, reading the book or hearing these excerpts, he's sort of like a philosophical sort. So he likes the, yeah. you know, he likes the sort of, um, he likes to just sort of dream about positions and stuff, which openings can be, uh, can be concrete, but it's interesting to me that, so again, he, as Gopal alludes to, he sort of advocates for air quotes system openings, although in a poetic and uh, demonstrative way, um, but Gopal, even coming at it from the other angle as someone who loves openings, it's interesting that, that you still appreciated it. Well, I would say, you know, 
it's sort of my love for openings and like, okay, the concrete theory with the weeds, that's just something I can't help myself with. <laughs> and I mean, I have, I have to say like, I, this is all pretty rich coming from somebody like Marcos who plays like very sharp openings. Like he's a lifelong, uh, Sveshnikov, yeah. Sveshnikov player, you know, but see one thing I, I try to tell people with openings, even like this, um, it's possible to play sharp openings and interpret them in a manner that allows you just that little margin for error rather than going into the razor sharp theory that everybody has their eyes on. Um, if we're going to talk about schemes like, you know, a couple players uh, who I would consider improvisers of the Kings Indian would be Ilya Smirin and Zdenko Kozul. Uh, in my latest article, I talked about them because they play the Kings Indian in more of a ideas type type way. So it's good because they you know, have a relatively stable position and they can play these ideas and not go into the sharpest theory. But, uh, you know, there is also the other side. Like I talk about some of the Greek players like uh, Cotronius and Theodoro, you know, two of my favorites, uh, the way they play the Kings Indians. So, uh, yeah, I, I like I like to call that that family of like or that type of style where you play these very sharp openings, but in a plan based way, uh, like an improviser. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and we'll link to uh, to Gopal's aforementioned blog post. You guys should all be following him on Lee Chess and reading his every word. Um, so, Matt, I don't know if you have anything to add about this section or if you want to go on to your next pick, but it's uh, it's on you. Yeah, not 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 particularly. I, I guess yeah, I was I was interested in how he talks about openings as well. I wasn't aware of him be, him being such a big uh, theoretician in these sharp uh, openings, but the the again the previous chapter about uh, the the tragedy of the night. It's called looking at talking about how the character of a particular position doesn't necessarily depend on the opening that you play, but more on the pawn structure. And talking about you know if you this this chapter particularly is about where where White has a pawn on on d five in general the b eight tragedy of the night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, then that's it's quite a nice. Again, it's not. That one's, I guess, not massively new. But it's sort of obvious that if you've got a pawn on d5, then your b8 knight can't go to to c6. But it's it's just an interesting way, I thought, of of looking at things and showing sort of where that knight does end up and and how things work in that opening. But yeah, I, I do. I like it. I like his stuff on openings. I'm not a big theoretician myself, I have to admit. Um, but I probably ought to learn a bit more about some of my openings. Um, but yeah, so my 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 next one actually. I was going to go for something from uh, a slightly different bit from a chapter that Ben already talked about the on the breaking ice bit, um, which is chapter twenty three, which is where the the broker quote came from, because um, I just liked the, the the metaphor that he had of a chess game being uh, like a river in springtime. He says, so I'll, I'll read it out. Um, so one bank is the current position, the other bank is the successful outcome. There are blocks of ice floating in the river. There's also ice on both banks. The chess player tries to get from one bank to the other one, walking on the ice, jumping from one block of ice to another. Sometimes he's relatively safe, for example, when he's standing on thick ice near the shore. At others, there is a lot at stake when jumping from one block of ice to another. His main goal is not to drown, not to make the mistake that would cost him everything. Strong players try to minimise the number of risky jumps, that is, tough decisions. They study openings, which allows them to stand on safe ice near the shore. They study endgames, allowing them to rely on the ice on the other side of the river. And they try to have available as many blocks of ice in the middle of the river as possible. They collect into their arsenal tactical and strategic themes which they can rely on in the wild flow of the game. 
That's why the world's top chess players face really difficult decisions only a few times throughout the whole game. Most of the time, they're pretty sure what to do and how to do it. And then goes through on in, in the, the rest of that chapter to look at um, when he felt he was on thick ice and his opponent was on thin ice or swimming in the in the water um, in some opening preparation. Uh, and then some stuff as well on, on end games and, and tactics that, um, you know, the sorts of things that a strong player needs to know. I just thought it was a, a nice little uh, way of thinking about things and making sure that you're on the thickest ice you can be the longest time. It's the easiest way to yeah. play chess. Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphor. Um, I'm showing my age here, but in the, the prehistoric days of video games, there was this game called Frogger. I don't oh, yeah. know if either of you guys yeah, are of familiar. But, I mean, basically what he's describing is like a, a water version of Frogger where you just have to wait for a safe spot to try to to try to try jump across. Um, but, but, yeah, very poetic. And, again, does have some practical wisdom in it, I think. What, what do you think, Gopal? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, with regards to the thickest ice, uh, I remember a conversation like I was having with uh, Grandmaster Alex Shabalov about uh, like when we were roommates for a tournament and we were talking about just like his opening selection and then like some uh, middle game things that he did. We were just discussing our games after the round and he I found it really interesting that he thought of uh, things in terms of percentage plays like in poker for example. And I, I believe in the current context, like he, he felt like the thickest ice that he could stand on, at least with the percentages was uh, entering a type of position that didn't play to his opponent's strengths. So like a young player, uh, I believe it was in that game. Like he did, he's like, you know, look, I'm getting old. I could maybe blunder something or something like that. And so, you know, I chose this, this path because I felt like it was the highest percentage for me. Yeah, I love how much Shabalov is still out there playing. Like even, oh yeah, even, for sure. Yeah, it's um, yeah, another Sveshnikov uh, addict too. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And uh, his name, um, I, his name will come up again in a, a forthcoming interview about winning the World Open, as he's done that a couple times uh, as well. Um, so my final pick was also from the opening section, as Gopal's was. Um, and again, it's uh, it's one of these moments where Marcos just draws on his sort of um, um, wide range of, of interests and knowledge bases to, to sort of create an uh, original metaphor. And the section is called uh, Equal or More Equal, which uh, refers to um, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Um, and basically, uh-huh. he's talking about how to approach balanced positions because obviously in the opening everything is sort of trending towards uh computers equalizing more more um more easily than than one used to be able to so he writes um he writes an advantage is basically anything that increases your chances to win you can have an advantage on the clock an advantage may lie in the fact that you know the position better than your opponent or that you had it home on the board while the opponent didn't or it may mean that the position doesn't suit your opponent. It's unpleasant for him, but you enjoy playing it. It may mean that you have a clear plan and your opponent doesn't, or perhaps you are just a slightly better chess player. All these factors together form the subjective part of an advantage. When playing for a win, there's no reason to avoid equal positions. What is important is to avoid more equal positions. Always look for some... um, imbalance in the position such as the bishop pair in return for doubled pawns development versus material 
an advantage on the king side versus an advantage on the queen side, and so on. That will give you decent enough chances to outplay your opponent. So, yeah, I love this idea because as we're all working with computers, it's easy to see, you know, it could be zero, zero, or even if it's 0.1 or whatever, um, it's easy to just dismiss something as equal. But this this construct of uh, equal versus more equal, I think, is uh, quite useful for, for making sure that you have some sort of imbalance if you're trying to win an even game. 100%. I think... Um... Also, I can't remember if he necessarily touches on this. I don't believe he does because it's strictly like geared towards equal or more equal. Like, um, you know, you see this with the top players a lot. Like another approach is to actually enter a line that may be considered like more equal because it's either forcing in nature and it could peter out, but it would give you a good chance to test your opponent's preparation. Um, Because, and I guess the the equal side that doesn't make it more equal is the fact that you know, any the price of your opponent's mistakes may be higher in that given uh, line or whatever they choose. Yeah, yeah, and again, I mean, the that I would say that that section might be slightly geared more towards advanced players, but but the, again, it could be applied to a wide range if you just think about trying to pick openings where it's a position that you're, that you're comfortable in. Um, you know, that that can be an advantage regardless of your level. Where like instead of you know playing the the Petrov or whatever because your coach says it's a good opening like looking for something that that captivates you and that makes you want to do work on it um, and that that maybe caters more to your strengths if you're a dynamic player. Hundred um, percent. So that concludes the the draft, guys. I mean, uh, obviously, I think you guys probably feel the same way. We could have picked way more stuff. There's so many cool little analogies throughout throughout the the book. Um, is there is there anything that you guys? I mean, I've a, I want to chat with you guys a little bit too before we say our goodbyes. But from the book, is there anything else that you guys feel like has to be mentioned? Uh, so I, I would I would say I mean I, I don't know if you're going to come to it but but I think the the conclusion is 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 well written and well judged. Um, I mean we haven't really talked about a couple of bits of it. Um, so the, there's a bit about um, computer chess. One of the chapters is called uh, it talks about Ribka and Fritz, which dates it a little bit. Um, and so I think those chapters have probably been done better since, but. You know that's that's a bit harsh because they 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 came afterwards, um, but uh, and, and we haven't really talked about the the bits at the end about the the sort of searching for beauty in chess, which are again slightly different in tone, I think, from from a lot of the rest of the book. Um, but yeah, overall, I I think it's it's actually I could have picked another, yeah, probably at least five, probably ten different um, bits to, to add that, that I enjoyed. There, there's a there's a few. It's hard. It can't really even call them the missteps. It's it's there's for for me. There's a couple of chapters, as I mentioned earlier, that don't quite match up to the rest of the book. But like, there's 33 chapters. I reckon at least 25 of them are excellent, and the rest are just good. Um, and all of them have very good examples. So it's <laughs> it's it, I, I, yeah, definitely recommend it as a book. Yeah, well said. And and it's funny with the computer chapter because again this book was published in 2018, so it's it's not that old and he does draw in like something like 8 years worth of uh 
of of computer games in it and he finds some really cool things but yeah i mean things things just just evolve so quickly and obviously uh you know recent guest of the pod matthew sadler is uh, a good start if you're looking for (laughs) um the cutting edge of uh of what computers are uncovering in terms of chess and great books by him Yeah. yeah Yeah. And every time I, you know, I start reading something like that, whether it be Sadler's book or that section, I always start thinking, man, I could be learning so much from computers, but, but there's just something about them that, that amateur players, they just, it's hard to tap into that. It's hard to, it's hard to find the energy. Did, did you see the, uh, the chess 960 game the other day that got some, some traction? I, I, I didn't. No, no, no I didn't either. I uh, have to have a, have a look at that. It basically, um, yeah, it's a, a Leela versus Stockfish, and I mean, it's it, the the opening position is very skewed towards white, and uh, Leela just absolutely crushes Stockfish. I'll nice. I'll, uh, I'll forward it to you. Um, yeah, the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get that link uh, in the show notes. And um, just to wrap up, I did tease that we would share his practical chess advice, which again, he's written a whole book about. Um, so I recommend. I mean, I. I recommend both of his books, but, but he, in about two pages, I think he gives a lot of good advice, which of course um, has been echoed many times on, on this podcast, but still I felt like he landed on a lot of things um, that through a lot of trial and error, I've found to be uh, good advice as well. Um, So number one, he says training advice. If you're trying to get better at chess, play 50 tournament games a year. He says uh, solve puzzles where you get 70 to 80% correct. Um, but then he also said something that I haven't seen that that in that many other places, which is um, he said, if you're an amateur, spend 75 percent of your time on aspects of chess you enjoy and 25 percent uh, on aspects you might not enjoy as much. But he said, if you have professional aspirations, you might need to make that more like 50 uh, 50. Um, because it's just more important to shore up your weaknesses. And I think in his case, he might be thinking of uh, of openings in particular. And he also advised uh, keeping a journal um, of, of all the study activity that you do just as a way to hold yourself accountable. And again, if you read The Secret Ingredient with uh, with uh, David Navarra, um, you'll, you'll hear him flesh out these ideas more as you can in, uh, in my interview with him. Um, so before we go, Gopal, I've, I've heard you in some other interviews. I know you've got a book in the pipeline. What's the status? We got to get an update. Uh, I mean, it looks like, honestly, it will probably be multiple volumes and I'm hoping for a chessable course. Like I have a lot of my material organized and it's just quite a lot. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of uh, where we're at right now. Uh, just I've organized examples and like, I've, while I was organizing it, I just can't help myself. So I started annotating them like some light speaking notes. So it'll be just checking some variations, um, making sure the quoted games are like good examples, like relevant examples. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have it ready in about a year. Excellent. Well, holler at me when it's coming out so we can, Absolutely. Uh, we, so we can get you on the pod and, and check the book out. Um, and Gopal, I got to ask as well. I mean, yeah. rena- renowned as one of the strongest NMs in the world, any, any chance of uh, getting out there OTB to try to uh, lose that title and become uh, <laughs> for, first of all, Maybe. an FM, but possibly an IM as well. Yeah, so like uh, this part of the year uh, was the biggest uh, teaching season for me. Uh, I with two high schools in Illinois as their co- chess coach, 
And there's a, for those that don't know, there's a big high school chess scene in Illinois. It's when they gather at the end of their season, it's like the biggest ter- like high school tournament in the world. So uh, yeah, I was, I had a lot of commitments during then, but like, you know, working with them obviously got me a bit more hungry playing the USAT uh, recently too. That gets me more hungry, not so much serious event, but just being around chess is, is really nice. Um, I had a quick, uh, quick thing I, I wanted to come back to though, with regards to uh, kind of echoing some of the practical chess improvement yep. advice and uh, something that was said earlier about without nights by, by Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I do quite a bit wa- with students and it, you can do it yourself, actually. Like if you mess around with the board editor uh, on Lee Chess and if you compare the position that you have, but then let's say you're studying a hanging pawn structure or something like that, you know, and you just take a look at the difference in evals with different pieces exchanged, you know, because it's a bit unusual to imagine the position in front of you as anything else. But, you know, doing that, if you don't have any other references, like, you know, you could take away the knights and see how play differs and stuff like that. So that's something I really encourage a lot of people to do. And I use it a lot myself if I'm trying to understand something uh, on my own. That's interesting because that kind of almost feeds into one of the other chapters in the book about exchanges as a weapon, doesn't it? I think. Right. Oh, absolutely. Explaining which, which pieces you want to take off and if you know what the evaluation is in different situations. Yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, and yet another way to to use engines. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Matt, um, sure. I want to thank you for, for doing this as well. So before we started recording, you were chatting a bit about <laughs> the, uh, the, the London Chess League. So um, oh, no, maybe... <laughs> maybe... <laughs> What's I up? thought you were going to say system. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, my local chess league, uh, Hertfordshire Chess League, actually. Um, oh, sorry. But, uh, yeah, some pretty pretty strong players on there. Managed to uh, managed to beat a, a twenty one fifty the other day, so I'm quite happy. That's a bit. That's a, a good result for me. So I mean, they, they, yeah, my average opponent so far this season has been about twenty two fifty. So it's a a pretty pretty strong tough league, action. really. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm jealous of uh, getting to play composition that strong, like in in your hometown. You know, yeah, yeah. don't have to go too far. Some yeah. couple of IMs out there. Excellent. And uh, for listeners, I did want to let you guys know what's coming next month. By the way, there'll be no uh, no blindfold puzzle this month. Sorry, just couldn't couldn't make it happen. But so we've got potentially two book recaps coming in the next month. Um, Christopher Shabri, friend of the pod, uh, frequent guest, will be joining me to to recap the Mammoth Book of Chess. He's already been uh, been grinding. It's a great game collection book. I've got some catching up to do on that one with with this uh, going to the rearview mirror. And of course, uh, the legend Neil Bruce has been working on his uh, positional puzzle championship. So I don't know that that might be released as a bonus pod or just a, a regular one. But in any event, for for all you fellow chess book lovers, we've got. Some good content coming your way in March or early April. Um, so, guys, I want to thank you for for spending the time to um, to discuss this excellent book. Hopefully, uh, you know, when I interviewed Jan, I gave away a couple of the books because I'm such a fan of his and wanted to support it. So, hopefully, uh, and and thank you guys for helping both of you had praised this book before I even read it. So, thanks for turning me on to it. Absolutely, it's nice my trouble. pleasure. <laughs> um. Okay, so thanks again, guys, and thanks for listening, everyone, and we will catch you in the next interview or the next book recap. 
Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.